mom. She's a really good doctor. Hi, I'm Dr. Lex, but I'm also mom to Isabella, Lance, and Lucia. Our mom takes care of our family, our friends, and her patients. On this podcast, our mom is going to be talking to her doctor friends and teaching you how to keep your family safe and healthy. Okay, mom. Ready for the show? Let's do it. Welcome to Family Health with Dr. Lex. of a heavy one. Dr. Siri Press is here and she and I have discussed advanced directives, end-of-life care planning, and the limitations of medicine. Our goal was really just to kind of spark interest in having a conversation around end-of-life care planning, what that looks like, and helping people decide how they want their end of their life to look. Dr. Press obtained her medical doctorate from Loyola University of Chicago Stritch School of Medicine. She completed an internal medicine residency at the University Hospital in Richmond, Virginia, and she is now a practicing hospital physician in Atlanta. She's also really active on social media with her platform, Sisters in Medicine, and she is a pioneer in helping to get recognized the National Black Women Physicians Day, which is February 8th every year. She... Um, aims to inspire minority women to become physicians, and her social media platforms help uh, with that education and inspiration. She is an awesome doctor, she's a great speaker, and now I'm happy to call her a friend. I'd like for you to welcome Dr. Siri Press to the show. You have no idea how long my guest today and I have been talking about getting together to do a podcast because we're both social media educators. She's been around a lot longer on social media than I have, and her following and her content is so awesome, so educational and informative. Her name is Siri, but she was here first before the iPhone, Dr. Siri Press. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited that we finally got to connect. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Dr. Press is a hospitalist like me. She works primarily taking care of adult patients who need to be hospitalized to take care of their medical problems. And um, today we're going to talk about advanced directives and end of life care planning. I wore yellow because we're talking about death. So I wanted to bring a little bit of sunshine into the picture here, but it's a heavy topic. And as hospital physicians, I think that we're probably, you know, among the more experienced physicians when dealing with end-of-life care planning and the therefore are very versed in the importance of advanced directives and end-of-life care planning. So I'm excited that uh, you're going to help us learn and understand what they are, why they're important, and how we can start the conversations surrounding end-of-life care planning. So first of all, tell me, as a hospitalist, um, what ha- why is an advanced, what is an advanced directive? Let's talk about that first. Okay. So an advanced directive, as you know, is basically like a document where a patient kind of outlines what their wishes are in terms of their health care, especially if, you know, they find themselves in a situation where they're very, very sick. Um, so for instance, an advanced directive will include things like whether or not someone wants artificial life support, like ventilators or feeding tubes or things of that nature. Um, it also includes people that that person might want to be their decision makers in the event that they can't make these kinds of decisions for themselves. Um, So it's a document that kind of helps to guide us to know what our patients would want in those types of situations. 
So in an emergency situation, if someone, you know, falls to the ground or experiences a cardiac arrest while they're in the hospital and we don't know what their wishes are, how do we typically Mm -hmm. respond? Oh, we do everything. We literally try to bring them back to life as best we can because that's the default. The default is to try to bring someone back to life. And I don't, I'm not saying save their lives because there's a difference between saving a life and bringing someone back to life. Um, and I think a lot of lay people don't realize that like when your heart stops, when your lungs stop working, you're dead. And doctors are putting their God complex into play and saying, let's bring this person back to life or let's try to as best we can. Um, so that's the default to, to jump in and do everything. So we assume that most people would want us to try at least to save their lives. And there are a set of people who have had the discussions or have thought about it and have declared what they want. And they put that into paper form. It's a legal document that is signed and witnessed. And if we have that information, we can then act in accordance with their wishes, right? So if we know that they don't want to be resuscitated, we would not do anything if they went into cardiac arrest or if they stopped breathing, we would try to make them as comfortable as possible and allow them, you know, the natural process to occur, whether that's death or not, Mm -hmm. uh, we don't intervene in attempts to save their lives. So why is it important to have this document? So an advanced directive is important because it's, it's a, it's a guide for us to know what these people want in the event that they find themselves with their heart stops, with their lungs not working in the hospital setting. Because it, like you said, if we don't know what they want, we are pulling out all the stops. And then we may find ourselves in a situation, let's say if someone does have an advanced directive, but it's not on file and we have brought them back to life, put them on a ventilator and, and brought back to life, I'll put in quotes because a lot of times people's brain function isn't there. They have a pulse, but they're hooked up to a ventilator and they don't really have any chance of meaningful recovery. Then we find ourselves in a situation where it's like, okay, well now, you know, they have this advanced directive. We didn't know what they wanted. We did something that was against their wishes. And a lot of times we have to put that burden on their family members to say whether or not we can pull the plug, so to speak, when that family member may not understand that, hey, this person has already died, we brought them back to life, sort of, and now we're in an awkward predicament where you're listed as their power of attorney. And since we didn't honor their wishes, we're asking you to give us permission to honor those wishes. And I call it a burden because family members, no one wants to walk around feeling like, oh, I pulled the plug on my loved one. And they can't wrap their heads around the fact that no, your loved one actually died a couple days ago, and this is just the predicament we put them in, right? Like, you're not really pulling the plug. You're just giving us permission to undo this craziness that we've already done. Um, but that's why the document's important. And that's why, for me, like, I always, always ask about it, whether I'm the first person to admit a patient to the hospital or whether I'm seeing them on rounds. I'm like, hey, do you have an advanced directive? Um, especially if that person is sicker than normal, right? Like if I have a suspicion that maybe their hospital stay won't go as smoothly as someone else's might. Um, Yeah, so it's just, it's it's very important just to to make sure you're honoring someone's wishes in that setting and to keep their families from having to deal with the burden that goes along with 
pulling the plug, you know? Yeah. Yeah. In, in medicine and ethics associated with end of life care, we value autonomy, which is your ability to determine what you want for your own body. So you have, as long as you are of sound mind, you can decide what you want. You can decide what medications to take or not, what surgeries to have or not. You can decide if your heart stops, if you want us to bring you back to life, if you, um, uh, if you um, need a ventilator and you want, and you need to be connected to that ventilator for the rest of your life, you can decide that that is something that you want or you do not want. And so having that document basically is record of those wishes. It's you speaking for yourself. And in most situations, we want to do what you as the patient want for yourself. We want to act in accordance with your wishes because you are the decision maker for your own body. When there's right. no, when there's no directive or there's nothing for us to work with, then we defer to the family member. If you can't speak for yourself and that family member is a next of kin, either someone that you've designated or if you haven't designated someone, then there is a chain. There is kind of a hierarchy of someone that you are married to or a legal partner, and then it goes down to your living children. So tell me, so, <laughs> I, I know, but I want you to share with our friends how some of the difficulties that are associated with leaving the decision-making power to the family and not recording your wishes. So and, and just to piggyback off what you said, right, like what you said is legally how it's supposed to work, right? Like legally, that document tells us what to do. So legally, we could, you know, pull, pull the plug without a family member's permission. But as you know, in practice, even if we find that advanced directive, we still have to get, like, it's a... How do I explain it? It's like, yes, legally we could, right? But politically, socially, emotionally, that has to be a conversation, even with the advanced directive. And that's probably the more frustrating thing for me um, because it's like, I have this document, I know what this patient said they wanted, but because we didn't have it at the time, do you know what I'm saying? So, yes. so it's important yes. to- We love to have everybody on the same page. We love to have the family members who say, yes, I know that my dad wouldn't want this and I would love for you to carry out his wishes. But that's where some of, sometimes it becomes difficult for us because when you leave the decision-making power to someone else that may not be representative, their decisions might not represent what you actually want. Exactly. And that that's where we find ourselves in pickles a lot of the time where, um, you know, People, we, and we always tell people, we advise people to appoint a healthcare power of attorney um, that, they, that they believe would carry out their wishes, right? Um, but a lot of times people don't, people don't, a lot of times people don't, they, they think that, you know, th they feel guilty about making such decisions. They feel, you know, it, it's an emotional decision to have to make, right? Um, and a lot of times people don't really understand the decision that they're making. And so, our job is to help them to understand, right? So that they can get on the same page with their loved one and what their loved one wants. Um, and even with an advanced directive and even with a loved one who um, knows what they want, a lot of times they're trying to convince their family members, right? The people who are their next of kin, their children, their spouses, 
to say, hey, this is what I want. I need you to do this. And their loved ones disagreeing with them without realizing like, hey, this is their body. This is their life. We know you love them, but this is what it is, right? Um, And so it just becomes difficult when people aren't on the same page. It's just, it's a lot of of discussions. It takes up a lot of time. It takes up a lot of, uh, it takes a lot of patience to try to help people understand um, what's happening or what, what they're experiencing or the decision, decisions that they have to make around end-of-life care. And we deal with it on a pretty frequent basis. We deal with patients who we know are expected to pass away imminently. And so to have that discussion in a time where everyone is already stressed and confused and worried and the patient is you know suffering or in pain or not thinking clearly to have those discussions in the hospital in a time when the patient is very sick and possibly could die it puts everyone everyone's decision making it puts everyone's emotions you know in a very precarious place which is why we advocate for starting this discussion early <laughs> Amen to that. Um, yes, I when I was a resident um, in Virginia, my primary care clinic was at the VA medical center that was associated with my um, with the university hospital. And um, I remember I would have patients come in. Now, it wasn't until probably like my second end of my second year, beginning of my third year of residency, where I started to say, you know what, I'm going to start these conversations in my clinic because when I go to round in the hospital or when I'm on my ward rotation, I have to have these conversations with people. It would be much easier if their primary care physician or someone that they know and trust and have followed with for a long time is, is starting this conversation, right? Because there's more trust. There's more of a rapport there. You know what I mean? Um, so absolutely having these conversations before your patient winds up in the hospital. Um, and I think as hospitalists, we kind of um, or internal medicine trains people in general, internal medicine trains, family medicine trains, we kind of have like a crystal ball almost, like we can kind of see patients' trajectories, right? Like someone comes in with a set of problems, we kind of can predict how it's going to go. Now, some people may surprise us, but for the most part, we can kind of predict how things are going to go. Um, and so if you can do that from a clinic perspective in the clinic, that's way easier once the patient winds up in the hospital, it's way easier for us to kind of continue that conversation than to be starting it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, you, you bring up a great point about having the discussion with your family or primary care doctor, because that is the person who knows most about your medical history, um, can explain these things to you in a controlled situation ahead of time when you're thinking clearly, you know, no one's expecting um, to, to, to need an advanced directive, you know, unless you're somebody who is chronically ill towards the end of your life. And, you know, you're pretty clear about what you want. Most everyone else is like, this is something that I likely won't need anytime soon. But so to have the discussion seems like this is kind of odd that I'm planning for the end of my life when I am not near the end of my life, but you know, no one's getting out of here alive. We're all going at some point. And so to have that plan in place and to start thinking about it, even though it may not be imminent, um, is really smart because then you can make decisions when you're not really emotionally attached to the situation. You can think clearly and practically 
um, about how you want that part of your life to go. And, you know, the way we see it happen, sometimes it can get really ugly with family members making decisions and with, you know, with um, uh, when it's, when the decision needs to be made quickly, you know, and we're saying, hi, we need a decision. And your, your family members are saying, okay, I need to call my four sisters and my mom and, you know, and everyone needs to get on the same page. We might not have that much time and we might not get everybody on no. the same page. So when you have that time to plan ahead, right. you have these discussions. I'm not saying bring it up at Easter dinner. You know, I'm saying when you're discussing with your family members, you can talk about, hey, what would I want in, you know, in the situation? Um, would I want a feeding tube? Would I want to be brought back to life? Now, most people will say, um, and you'll, you know, this will resonate with you. Most people will say, well, if I, if you can't bring me back or if I'm not going to have any kind of quality of life, then just let me go, which drives me crazy because how do I know? If you're going to have any meaning, I'm just trying to say, I'm just trying to bring you back. I don't know whether you're going to right. walk or talk, but if you want that chance to be able to walk or talk, we at least have to try. So it, mm-hmm. it, it you know, a lot of people will say, if I, if there's no chance, just let me go. That's not an option on paper, right? Right. You have to pick one, right? You have to <laughs> go hard or go home. And <laughs> I have a... a, a <laughs> I have a, a rule of, of thumb that I that I tend to follow when it comes to that type of stuff. Like if I have a young patient who maybe has small children or is a you know, is a mom or a dad or, you know, like someone who is in a predicament where how do I say this? I, it's not politically correct to say this, but some people have literally forfeited their rights to die without suffering, right? Like some people are gonna leave this earth kicking and screaming because they have small children to live for. So they're gonna pull at every single chance they have at at being brought back to life and having a meaningful life. And so there are some people, I remember I had a a young woman that I ended up sending to the ICU. She um, was pregnant, um, had to be delivered immediately via C-section because she had had COVID and complications related to it. Um, her newborn was in the NICU. I had to send her directly to the intensive care unit where she was intubated and was there for a long time. Okay. Like a very long time. And I, I remember inheriting her back once she came out of the ICU and just looking through her chart, I was like literally crying because there were parts in her stay where the palliative care team was consulted and palliative care. They, they specialize in end of life care for those who don't know. Um, and they were having discussions with her family about how bad she was doing, like how she was maxed out on ventilator support and her oxygenation still wasn't doing that great. And her family was just like, no, keep going. Like, like she will be on that ventilator until she literally stops breathing. Right. Um, and, and that's fair. That's something you expect for a family to say when they have children at home waiting for this woman, like, like she kind of like, no, you don't get to, to die in peace. You, you have to keep fighting. Like you, you literally have to keep fighting. And that's a, that's a very different and special circumstance. Um, but, but she eventually came out of the ICU. It was months, months, months later. Um, she ended up getting a trach. Um, she had a peg tube in place. Um, but then, you know, she ended up being able to eat. She was able to talk again. She was able to you know, end up getting discharged and eventually wound up back with her family. Um, but again, very different situation that could have gone either way, right? But she didn't, I completely understood how 
how and why the family made the decisions that they made in that setting, right? But that's very different from 80-something-year-old Mima with stage four cancer who has lived her life and has gone through six rounds of chemo, and now she's in the hospital with infections and complications from having been on chemo. If Mima says, leave me alone, she has she deserves to die in peace, right? Like she deserves to have that. Um, and so the conversation with that family goes a lot different than like, I wouldn't have even had a conversation with that family of the young mother. I would have just been like, we're going to keep going until we have to call them and say she's gone. Like, cause there's no way they're, they're going to tell us to stop what we're doing. There's no way. But with Mima, leave Mima alone. Let, let Mima just, you know what I'm saying? Let her transition to peace. She's taken all the chemo you wanted her to take. It's, it's the end of the road. Like, let's let her die in peace. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that's kind of how I think about it and how I approach those situations. Like there are some people that you, you just, you have to, you have to let them fight it out, right? You have to let them fight it out. And then there are others that you just, you let them go. You just let them, go, especially if that's what they want. You know what I mean? Um, you bring up a great point about with the case with the young woman in the ICU, because no one ever expects to land in that position. You know, you mentioned COVID, but we see that a lot of times with traumatic injuries, you know, people who are in a vegetative state or in a coma because of an injury or an infection and, um, or stroke, things like that, that happen very unexpectedly. You know, you wouldn't expect a 20 something or a 40 something to end up in that situation. And so those are people who don't plan for this stuff. And, you know, you really should, because you want to, you want to know now everyone hopes for the situation that you described. Everyone says, well, you know, I would want to keep fighting as long as I had a chance for the miracle that could be for me to recover from this. And it was a miracle that she recovered, you know, it was really, you know, uh, probably hard work on the part of the doctors, her body healing, you know, and she, this woman sounds like she should have, she would have, or should have died without intervention. And so Mm -hmm. everyone in that situation would, would, be optimistic for that positive outcome. But suppose her family halfway through that hospitalization said she's fought hard enough. Let's take her off the ventilator and let her, you know, let nature take its course. You would have had a very different ending. And I think everyone is afraid of that, afraid to make that decision, especially when it's a young person, you know? That's Yeah, that's very, very true. I have a patient, you mentioned catastrophic strokes, right? I had a patient, he was 49 coming in, um, and had had an ischemic stroke that, you know, he didn't have very many deficits. He was still functional despite the fact that he had had that, that stroke. But days later, he had a hemorrhagic conversion. Like it converted to a hemorrhagic stroke and he was completely unconscious. He was essentially in a vegetative state. And there was nothing anyone could do. There was nothing the neurosurgeons could do. It was a very just devastating situation. And um, now, 49 is young in medical terms. It's not old, right? Um, he wasn't married, didn't have any kids. He had a, a mother. His mother was his next of kin. And I remember having the conversation with her. Now, he had been in the hospital for like two and a half months when I had inherited him and was like looking through his chart. Um, and his mother was his next of kin. So I called her and I'm like, hey, you know, what's your understanding of, you know, what's going on? And she was like, oh, he's getting better. He's getting better. And the reason she thought that is because there were all these little fires that everyone was putting out, like, oh, he got a clot or no, he got an infection, right? And he's on antibiotics for that, or he got 
um, he's in renal failure, like his kidneys aren't working. So they're dialyzing him for that. So it's like they're putting out little fires and telling her about that. So in her mind, she's interpreting it as he's getting better and not seeing it as, hey, this doesn't bode well at all. Right. And then when I pick him up, I had the pleasure of finding a swollen arm and a quad in him. And so I'm calling neuro like, can I put this man on a blood thinner right now? Like, what do I do? Because as you know, Lex, like if that quad travels, to his lungs, like he's, he's gone, gone, like outside of his, his brain, not functioning the way it used to, his body will shut down. Right. Um, so I found myself in between a rock and a hard place. And I always tell myself if I'm chasing my tail and if I'm damned, if I do, and damned, if I don't, that's when we need to start having some goals with care talks. Right. But his mother, um, she was very religious, very God, you know, God's going to heal his brain. God's going to wake him up. He's not never going to wake up. He's going to wake up. She kind of just wasn't hearing what we were saying. Cause I mean, that's her baby. I don't care how old you are. You're your parents' baby, right? Like that's her baby. Um, and so in hindsight, having that conversation with her sort of went against my personal policy, right? Like young, you just, you let him, let him ride it out. Like just let him ride it out. But I felt like she at least needed to know. And that's what I told her too. I'm like, you know, it's your right to keep, you know, to keep this aggressive care going. It's your right to make an informed decision and letting me know that, you know, with the neurologist's blessing and with your blessing, I can put him on a heparin drip knowing that there are risks, knowing that he could bleed more, knowing, you know, um, so it's your right for us to, to, to have us keep doing this. Um, but what I don't want is for you to be surprised if he doesn't walk out of this hospital, because if you're surprised that he's stuck here until he dies, then I haven't informed you and I haven't done my job, right? Now, I'm not God. I'm not, you know, a fortune teller. I'm a physician and I'm telling you what I've seen and what this looks like, right? Um, so that you can have, you know, the same information that I have or, or similar information that I have. Um, and she, she's still wrestling with it. I, I still stalk that man's chart from time to time just to see what's happening. He actually, um, he had, he went into cardiac tamponade and coded. Um, and they did a pericardial window, brought him back to life. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, he still, still has a pulse and his mother, they're still having conversations with his mother about his trajectory. Um, and she's still trying to wrap her brain around it, but, um, but yeah, but it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard. Yeah. And it wasn't expected. Setting, setting the expectation about what the outcome is going to be um, can really change the, the, the tenor of the decision-making, you know, and the, and the conversation, because we can keep people alive. We can keep the heart beating with machines. It doesn't mean they're going to have any quality of life. And so when you're having these difficult conversations, especially when it's a young person, especially when it's unexpected, you know, uh, you really have to, and you're the decision-maker, you really have to take into consideration the truth about the reality of the situation, what the truth in terms of the um, prognosis is, and then determine, is this a life that this person would want to live? You know, would this mm -hmm. young man want to live in a bed attached to a ventilator with no brain function, you know, mm -hmm. no, no quality of life? He can't speak. He can't feed himself. He can't get up and walk around, you know, and if the answer is no, then 
it's a difficult decision, but you know, it's, it's the right one. And we can, you know, there are so many ethics cases in the news periodically, you'll read about young children who are in vegetative state. And when we say vegetative state, that means that your body is alive, your heart is beating, but your brain is not functional and will never be functional, you know, persistent vegetative state. People cling to that one case of the kid who woke up 30 years later Mm-hmm. you know, and have hope, but, you know, you have to take all things into consideration. What is the toll that that takes on the family, on the person, the patient who's living through it, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and realistically, is this something that this person would want us to be doing? And so that's why when you prepare for these conversations, you have the ability to speak for yourself. It's almost like speaking mm-hmm. from beyond the ventilator, you know, you right, can say right. what you want and you don't have to put anyone else in the position of making the decision. Mm-hmm. I've had some people who have said, you know, my, the children are not going to carry out my wishes. Right. Like had like little old ladies who say, cause there's 95 year olds who are totally functional and who don't want to go out. They want to go out fighting, kicking and screaming because they're driving around and shopping. You know, they, they're not ready and they, they won't be ready to go. But I've had people say, I want to go peacefully. My son is going to fight me on it. And so, and my, you know, my children are not going to want that for me. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a younger person. Let's say for example, a person in their sixties who is going through cancer treatment, but has had enough you know, they're done. And if they pass, they're okay with that, but their children are not children are not on the same page mm-hmm. at that point. Sometimes we recommend that you appoint someone who has the capacity and the intention to carry out your wishes and communicate those wishes with us. So if you say mm-hmm. my kids won't do it, but I know my friend will carry out my wishes to the letter, you appoint that person as your proxy, right? Right. You write exactly. your down, you make that person your point person so that when we look, because you're having trouble, we look to see who to call, we're going to mm-hmm. call a friend who is going to carry out your true wishes. And it might not be your kids. Exactly. And, and I think people find themselves in, in those situations where their loved ones aren't carrying out those wishes, if the wishes are to be left alone, because people have this, um, this misconception that medicine is just the end all be all right like and as a christian i'm a christian okay i feel like being in medicine is for me god has reminded me time and time again that i am not him okay like he gives life he takes it away it's not i i'm a tool that he uses to save people's lives when they get sick within the limitations of medicine, right? But people seem to have this idea that like they get sick, they go to the hospital, they get better, and that's it. Like medicine will fix me when medicine has left a lot to be desired, okay? Like there are a lot of things, there there are a lot of things we can fix, but there are even more that we cannot fix. We don't have a cure for every single cancer. We don't have a cure at all for any kind of metastatic cancer. So once someone starts using the term metastatic, like I don't care how much money you have, I don't care how many connections you have, there's not anything we can really do to get rid of all that, right? Um, but people people don't understand that. And so when you have loved ones being like, no, do everything, do everything, in their minds, I think they're thinking that the every that the everything that we're doing is gonna work. Like <laughs> When really that's not, that's not the case. And as doctors, I'm sure you feel this way. Like 
someone comes in, like our goal is to treat, 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 treat. Our goal is to, to get them in, get them out, get them better. Um, but like I said before, when I find myself chasing my tail and, and feeling like, okay, I'm trying to do this one thing to fix this person, but this one thing that I'm trying to use could also hurt them. It's like, we're in a pickle, right? Like we're in a pickle. Um, but the goal is always to think about what we can do to save their lives, um, or prevent them from dying or to bring them back to life. And, and those loved ones, again, I think that, that have a hard time saying no thank you to, to certain medical care are the are the, the loved ones that somehow think that medicine is just a silver bullet and it's not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because sometimes the goal really is truly, or the goal ends up being to allow the patient to die with dignity, to die comfortably in accordance with their wishes for their body. You know, we are a society that is not okay with death. We are, we do not consider death to be a part of life. We think that we can prevent death and we can outrun death and we can run from it and around it and never through, you know, um, even through it sometimes when we bring, you know, we we bring people back from the dead. It's true. We think that, um, that we should die old in our beds, warm and cozy, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, the, the reason that I'm so, um, grateful that we're having this conversation is because, the more we start to incorporate death as a part of life and start to accept that we will all, you know, um, that we will all be leaving at some point in time, you know, the more comfortable we can get having the conversations around what we want that to look like. I mean, you just, it's such a gift to be able to decide how you want the end of your life to go because we see it go very poorly and it can be very ugly and very painful and no one wants that. You know, people, you talk to people, you say, what, you know, what are you most afraid of? A lot of people will say pain or I'm afraid of dying or, you know, and no, no one wants that. No one wants to die with, you know, tubes and lines and, you know, chest compressions and being uncomfortable. People don't, you don't want to see it that way. Um, Mm -hmm. We hate to see it that way. We hate to see a painful, ugly death. Um, when well, the, opposite, the opposite could what, be true. And what you're describing is really how it looks, right? Most people don't know how it looks. They don't know that when they call 911 for their loved one who's dropped dead, that EMS is going to come and drill holes into their bones to, to get IOs for access. They don't know that their ribs are about to be broken. They don't know that there may be bloodshed during this process. They they don't know that until they actually see it. Right. And the media mm-hmm. does a great job at making it look very pretty and very just clean. Right. Like everyone has seen Grey's Anatomy and the codes that they run on Grey's Anatomy. They're so not real. <laughs> they're, they're so not real. Um, the amount of time that like, like I remember one scene from Grey's Anatomy, I think it was Meredith that had drowned. And they were like trying to code her and bring her back or resuscitate her. And they were doing chest compressions and using the defibrillator, which every single code I've seen on TV, they break out the defibrillator. That's not how it works. Like not every code situation yeah. requires a defibrillator. But there was a scene where Meredith had drowned and they were trying to bring her back to life. And they had they stopped compressing, like they got off her chest and then suddenly a heartbeat comes. And it's like, that's not how that works. You don't get off someone's, like you're constantly on that person's chest. Like 
Like it's not a, hey, let's take a break from chest compressions and see what happens. But again, TV makes it look one way. And I think that's the image that people have in their minds when they think about CPR or ACLS, advanced cardiac life support. Um, but that's not what it is at all. Yeah. At all. And when you think about it, when you think about it, uh, I don't know the exact statistics, but when you are at the point where you require cardiac resuscitation, there's a very small likelihood that you will survive. And so the question again remains, do you want to pursue something that's uh, very interventional, very painful? We're talking about, you know, tube in the airway. We're talking about defibrillation, electrical, uh, delivering electrical conduction to the heart to get it to restart. You know, this, these are for, do you want to go to those extremes for something that is very unlikely to be successful? And, um, and so yeah. if, if we just shed light on the reality of it, of what, what death could look like as a young person going through a tragic accident or as a middle-aged person who is dealing with an unexpected cancer or as an old person who is, you know, um, just having organ system failure, you know, if we take a look at and start to get comfortable with that conversation, it'll be a little bit easier to make the decisions and keep in mind, you know, that the decision can be, is not, is not static. You can change your mind. You can change, you know, if you decide at 45, Hey, I don't want to be resuscitated. And then you, you know, you go through some, something and you can change your mind. Your family can change their decision as well. Nothing is permanent. It's just really a framework. And um, you mentioned the palliative care team. I just kind of want you to expand on that a little bit because the role that palliative care can play in these discussions is invaluable. Yes, that's that's very true. Like the palliative care team, like they are literally the experts in having these conversations. And as a hospitalist, I try to kind of what's that basketball move? The alley oop. Like you set it up and then they they dunk it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because we're the ones that are the most versed in their clinical trajectory, right? Um, and so it's like as a hospitalist, I like to always start the conversation at least and get the family um what I say is open to hearing about what end of life care would look like um and that's always what I tell my palliative care folks when they're coming in like hey I've already told them this this and this this is the clinical situation this is what the specialists are saying this is you know this is the the clinical picture so when they come in they can kind of reinforce that and hopefully get the family on board with the well not even on board like get the family to a space where they can make an informed decision about how end of life care for their loved one should look like right um so so yeah and and also with the the idea that the decision isn't permanent um i had a case um of a now this is another realm of medicine that's not like any other realm so i mentioned the va right the va medical center where all of our vets are receiving their care um, I was a, um, a third year resident doing a rotation at the VA and I had, there were a lot of codes that week. Okay. Now to your point, statistically speaking, the general population, a lot of times you code them, they're not coming back, right? It's a very small percentage that even will come back. Um, with the vets, I'm sure that number is very different just based on my anecdotal experience and based on the fact that, you know, these men and women who have put their bodies through hell. Um, can I say hell on your podcast? I'm sorry. Whatever you want. Uh, okay. um, who put their bodies through terrible things, right? 
vets come back and come back normal, right? Like to a large degree. And I don't know what the statistic is. I don't know what the number is. But I had a patient whose whose family had, you know, he was like 90 something years old with dementia and he coded and he was a full code at one point, right? Which is why we coded him. Um, And he came back after like two minutes um, and was just back to normal. There was no, no intimate, like nothing. Okay. And I was just like, oh my God. And I remember us having a conversation with his family. Like, are you sure you want us to do that again? You know? And at first they were like, oh no, you know, we can make a DNR DNI. But then I guess after some thought, they changed their minds and were like, no, you tried to bring him back once. He came back. So let's just leave him full code. And if he's not going to come back, he's not going to come back. And I remember my attending at the time being like, why would they do that? And I'm like, because they saw him come back to life. Like they saw this play out like it plays out on TV. And then (laughs) I had to have a conversation with my med students. Like, I know that I know what this looks like. I know that this looks like. Oh, you know, you code someone after two, five minutes, they're back and everything's good. There's no Arctic protocols. There's no ventilators. Like, I'm like, this is not how real life works. Like these are vets. Okay. They're not really human. Okay. <laughs> and so for any of your listeners out there who have veterans as parents who are like, what are these people talking about? Like every time Papa died, he got brought back to life and it was fine. Like, you know, so definitely a different kind of population. Um yeah. But yeah, but again, to that case, like you said, the decision's not a permanent thing. You right. know, it's it's not permanent. Yeah. You mentioned it when you were talking about the palliative care team, the word um informed. And I think that the the um, you know, just to define, you know, in to be informed is to be aware of all of the possibilities. We don't make any decisions for you, even medically. We, you know, we make recommendations. Really, our job is to give you your options and let you decide what is best for your body. If that's surgery or if that's, you know, letting you die in peace, you know, we're really here not to, to carry out what you want to make sure you know all the options, the risks, the benefits, and the alternatives, mm-hmm. and then to help carry out your wishes for your care. And so when you are informed and when your family is informed real, realistically about the realistically about the likely outcomes, you know, about the likely course of disease, the prognosis and the likely outcome, then you can make the best decision. Um, I just want to do, to define, you said full code, DNR and DNI. Can you just define each of those for our friends who are listening so that they can understand the terminology? So DNR, DNI. So DNR means do not resuscitate. So that speaks specifically to chest compressions. Um, Meaning, you know, if your heart stops, a part of the process of CPR and ACLS is doing chest compressions to get your heart to pump again with the goal of getting your heart to pump on its own again. Um, And that also may include the defibrillator pads and things like that. DNI is do not intubate, meaning do not put the person on a ventilator to breathe for them if their lungs aren't working. Now, the issue I have with DNR, DNI is that we separate them in verbiage, but in practice, they go together. You kind of can't have one without the other. Like, there's no way I'm going to intubate someone 
who didn't want chest compressions because like, what's the point? What am I ventilating if there's no circulation, right? And then the same with chest compressions without a ventilator. Why am I getting your heart to pump again if I'm not going to be able to give you a way to oxygenate the blood that I just got pumping through you again? Um, and so it's just, it's, we separate them in verbiage, but I really hate it because if someone tries to say, oh, well, you can do chest compressions, but don't intubate me. It's like, that's, that's not how this works. <laughs> like, Intrinsic um, to the process of resuscitation requires that we obtain and maintain an airway, which sometimes exactly. requires too. Exactly. So, yeah. So that, that's the definition of the terms. And yes, we separate them, but for your listeners out there, please don't separate them in your minds. They are one and the same. If you do not want to be resuscitated, you also do not want to be intubated and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, there are some patients who are experiencing, you know, one of the talking about pet peeves. One of the things that bothers me is there are people who, you know, will say that they don't want to be resuscitated or that they don't want to be intubated. And on occasion, we use intubation as a temporary means of oxygenating the bloodstream while your pneumonia heals or while your body recovers from a COPD exacerbation. And so, you know, that's where communication and education really lies. Because if you say, I absolutely do not want to be intubated, let's say you're a lifelong smoker, you have COPD and emphysema, and you, um, you say, don't under any circumstances, put a tube down my airway. And we say, well, listen, you know, this does not mean that if we put a tube down your airway, that you're going to be connected to a ventilator for the rest of your life. And a ventilator could be a very useful tool in helping to stabilize our patient while their body heals. And then when their body is recovered, we take the tube out and many people go back to their normal function after that. So it's really important that people understand the utility of a ventilator instead of just blanket saying, don't intubate me. Because in those situations, sometimes if you not, if you choose to not to be intubated, you won't live, you know, and right. there's a very good prognosis. There is a good potential that if we can treat you uh, using an into, um, a ventilator, then, um, then you have a chance of, you know, walking away on the other side of it. We see it all the time. Um, so just really, really important, you know, had this conversation really highlights some important points about communication, education, understanding, realistic goals of expectations, goals and expectations, um, and, you know, utilization of the palliative care team. I just wanted to um, kind of remind everyone, too, that just because we involve the palliative care team doesn't mean that we are necessarily talking about end of life. While they do specialize in end of life care goals of, um, and plan of care uh, surrounding the end of life, um, sometimes they are involved just to help with um, quality of life at the end. You know, as someone is dealing with a chronic illness, um, you know, um, they can help with symptom management or med uh, management of the side effects of some of the medications. So palliative care is really a very useful. Um, uh, team to be a part of. If you are experiencing a, chron a chronic illness, um, if you have long-term chronic medical problems that require a lot of intervention or, you know, recurrent hospitalizations, the palliative care team can be part of it to help manage your symptoms, manage your side effects, as well as establish what is the plan of care should the end of life um, come up. Oh, it's heavy stuff. Right. It's heavy stuff. Yes. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you maybe is just some tips for how we can start the conversation with our family and how, you know, even if you're not on the trajectory headed towards your end of life, you know, what would be some good ways to, you know, bring this conversation up and 
start talking with our families about how we see that part of our life going. Meaning as the patient, I'm sorry, your, your, your sound cut out. So as the patient, how should you approach yeah. the topic with your family? Yeah, maybe just give the, um, the listeners some tips on how we can approach this conversation, you know, whether you're expect, you know, it, towards the end of your life and living with a chronic illness or um, whether you're early in your life and you're not expecting to be terminal anytime soon, what would be a good way to start this conversation so that you can be prepared as prepared as possible? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. And seeing as how I haven't even had the conversation with my loved ones, <laughs> I don't even really know how to answer that. I guess, um, I mean, I guess, wait, well, I guess a good place to start is in the doctor's office, right? Like, let's say, you know, there's a couple that's going to the doctor together, because that tends to happen, because um, wives are the note takers, and they ask all the questions, and the husbands kind of just sit there, and you know, you know how that goes. <laughs> uh, so, so when you're, you know, in the doctor's office with your spouse, maybe bring the topic up with your primary care physician, and see what their thoughts are on it, right? And then, let them be the ones to kind of guide you through that process. Um, but being in, you know, a clinic setting may be a good way to start. Um, and then also, let's say, unfortunately, let's say if you wind up in the hospital, you're young, you wind up in the hospital for some reason, um, your hospitalist or whoever's admitting you is going to ask you the, the question. Um, and so then that might be a good opener for your, your spouse if you're calling them to update them like, hey, I'm getting admitted to the hospital. These are some of the questions they ask me, you know, what are you, especially if you're in, well, many people getting admitted to the hospital aren't really in their right minds. But if you are <laughs> a little less sick and in your right mind, um, that might be a good good segue into that conversation. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. What, what, what would you recommend for your listeners? You know them better than I do. <laughs> I, you know, I like to, I love the suggestion of talking with your primary care doctor because your, your primary care doctor, like I said earlier, knows you best, but also can answer a lot of the questions around and, and kind of set, you know, uh, provide education as to what the end of life looks like and what your options are, you know? So I love the idea of talking with the primary care doctor first. Um, you can use Dr. Siri and myself as an excuse. You can go and say, Dr. Siri and Dr. Lex said, I have to have this conversation and we have to start talking about this, even though I'm not expecting to die anytime soon. We really should just, you know, think about how we want the end of blame us. Um, but also you could use, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> you could use news articles, stories in the news, books you're reading or movies you're watching to kind of say, hey, you know, I was thinking about um, something that I saw or that I read and, you know, uh, how, how starting to think about really writing down or just expressing to my loved ones, you know, what I would want, you know, my husband knows for sure. Um, if I'm going to, if I'm going to go, you know, and, and it's tragic and irreversible, you're going to let me go and you're going to give as many of my organs as you possibly can to as many people as can use them. He knows that for sure. And if there was a situation as much as he wouldn't want, you know, he would, he would want me to fight. That's my decision. And he's the person who's going to carry that out for me. So it's important, you know, to have that conversation and let those people know what your wishes are. Like I said, if you don't think they can carry it out for you, pick someone else or make sure you write it down and have your lawyer and your family care doctor sign it. Um, but yeah, use real life conversations, real life situations. COVID is a really, I'm sure everyone knows somebody who's come into a situation where they know someone who's had COVID and maybe has faced the conversation of, do I want to be on a ventilator or not? Do I want to be resuscitated or not? You can use 
you know, TV, movies, books, media, news, or even real life situations to kind of start the conversation. And then lean on your family doctor for information if you need it, or if you have questions. Um, Most hospitals have a palliative care team that you can reach out to and talk to and ask questions. There are some great websites and podcasts um, um, and books about end-of-life care. There is a form called the MOLST form, which stands for Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. And on it, it describes all of the options. It tells you what you, you know, you can basically use checkboxes and you could download that for free in the hospital. Mm-hmm. If it's still hot pink, in my hospital, it was hot pink, like, so that if you pull up a chart right there, it says this person has announced their wishes and we right there before we do anything. So we have a lot of tools mm-hmm. in place on our end, we just need the general community to start having the conversation and start getting comfortable with this conversation because it is a heavy one. Yes, yes, indeed. Now, as I mentioned, Dr. Siri is a social media superstar. I want my friends to know where they can find you on social media so that they can continue to learn from you. You are a content creator, you're an educator, and you're such a great uh, personality. You're such a great vehicle for um, sharing information from the medical field to the general public. So I would love for you to tell us where we can find you on social media so that we can continue to learn from you. So thank you for that. Um, my Instagram handle is at Siri PMD, C-I-R-I-P-M-D. Um, and I have a YouTube channel. The link is in my bio. Um, I'm working on my website, so be on the lookout for that. And my contact information is also in my Instagram bio. So that's where you can find me. And one last thing um, I wanted to bring up. I wanted you to please um, make sure you tell my friends about your storefront. Oh, oh my gosh. How could I forget about that? Stuff? Well, and since your listeners aren't physicians, I guess they wouldn't really be buying um, things out of my storefront, but <laughs> National Black Women Physicians Day, the holiday, um, we got it incorporated. We got it trademarked. Congress has signed it into a, a national holiday. Um, and it's February the 8th every single year. And so I created a storefront with merch. So I mean, if your listeners know a Black female physician that they want to buy some merch for, um, it's there. Or if they want to tell a Black female physician um, about the merch, it's there. But it's um, Shopify. Oh, my gosh. What's the website? The the storefront is called MBWPD Official. And it's on Shopify. So if you just type that in, you'll be able to find it. And that stands for National Black Women's Physicians Day, which is February yes which you helped to identify, establish, incorporate, and get notified <laughs> and uh, recognized nationally. Um, I just want to draw attention to that because um, I believe the number is 2% of physicians of physicians are Black women, which, yes. is, which is a severely underrepresented population in medicine. Um, the voice, the skill, the experience, the knowledge, the compassion of Black women is uh, so needed in our community, in our healthcare and our medical communities, um, so that we can continue to uh, provide excellent care, not only to our Black communities, but to everyone. And so we want to amplify that voice. So if you would um, consider checking out Dr. Siri's website and supporting National Black Women Physicians Day by buying her merch, spreading the word, talking to your friends and colleagues and supporting any young Black women who want to go into medical school. Um, I will do whatever I can to help amplify that voice and that mission and that purpose, because your voice is so valuable. It is so much needed. 
And um, I just really appreciate you, who you are, what you do. And um, thank you so much for being here with me to help talk about this really heavy subject. Yes, no problem. And thank you for having me. You're a rock star too. We all kind of hang in the same circles, right? So. Yeah. Let's, let's do this again soon, okay? Let's not make it too yes. long. Yes, we will. Thank you, Dr. Siri. Take care. Thank you. thanks for listening to my podcast, Family Health with Dr. Lex. If you love the music like I do, you can find more at therealmichaelvm.com forward slash music. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review, subscribe, and share with your friends. You can ask questions, suggest topics for future podcast interviews, and find more health and wellness information on my website, drlexlifestylemedicine.com. See you next time.